All right, good morning again. We're going to jump into our passage this morning that's in Matthew chapter 6. Before we do, uh, let's talk to our, our young ones. So young ones in the congregation, we do this uh, before every sermon. Uh, I want to tell you what the passage is going to be about and then what the sermon is going to be about. So uh, young ones, have you all ever heard of a monkey trap? Uh, it's, you know, there are people, there are all kinds of people that want to trap monkeys. And uh, for a long time, it was really hard until uh, this certain group figured out it was actually really, really easy to trap a monkey. Uh, all you have to do is you find this melon. You know, you find this melon that grows, you know, it's on the vine, it's, it's on the ground. If you cut a little hole in this melon, uh, the, uh, this monkey, it, it just, you know, a small hole, uh, these monkeys will come along and they'll stick their hand in the melon to get the seeds because they love the seeds. And they'll, they can get their hand in just barely through the hole to grab seeds. But then when they get the seeds and they make a fist, they can't get their hand back out. The hole's not big enough. And so they're stuck. And all these people have to do is they just, they just walk up. Walk up. The monkey's right there. The monkey sees the people coming up to nab them. And the monkey starts freaking out, you know, screaming, screaming, and, and kicking, and so like swatting with the other, the, the, the good hand. All the monkey has to do is what? Let go. Let go of the seeds. and whoop. But the monkey refuses to let go of the seeds. The person just walks up, nabs the monkey, gets the monkey. The monkey knows, like, death is coming. Won't let go of the seeds. And in our passage in Matthew 6, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to warn us that we can be trapped by our love for money. Jesus says the same thing can happen to us in our love for money, and it can kill us. Now, money is not a bad thing. Young ones, hear me say that. Money's not a bad thing. Loving money, like idolizing money, that is a bad thing. That's a very dangerous thing. Because money, you think about it, money and Jesus, they have a lot in common. A whole lot in common. I mean, we think about money, we think money is the answer to what problems? All of our problems. It's very easy to think that, that if I just had more money, money will solve everything. And, and you start serving money and chasing after money like it was your master. And Jesus is going to tell us, you will have a master in this life. You will serve something. But if it's money, if you live for money, can money save you? No. And y'all, like just young ones, the old ones here need to hear that too. We all need to, like, can money save you? And we know, that, like, no, it really can't save us. But there is a master, there really is a master who can. And it's this master, Jesus, who really can give you everything. And he can give you everything because he loves you. And he loves you so much and he's able to give you everything because he died to give you everything. He died for your sin. He took your death by yourself. You don't deserve anything good from God because of your sin. But Jesus loves you so much, he gave up everything to come down to heaven, to take your sin on himself in order to give you heaven. You've got to trust Jesus as your master for all that you want. So hear me say this, kids, last thing. Living for treasure, living for wealth, living for glory, that is a good thing. Thing. Young ones, you are supposed to live for glory. 
but not glory on this earth. You're supposed to want and live for that heavenly glory. And only Jesus, your master, your Lord and your savior, can give that to you. And he gives it to you by grace. This is what Jesus is going to tell us today in this uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount all fall. We've come to this part of the sermon where Jesus is giving the commands to his New Testament church. Uh, and, And so these commands are for the members of the church. And uh, he's, he's doing a lot of direct quoting from the Old Testament uh, because the Old Testament has been misunderstood. He's also uh, contrasting the situation of the church with Old Testament kingdom Israel. There are differences in situations now. Uh, and so he's, he's, just, he's doing contrasting. He's doing correcting. Pharisees are getting the Old Testament wrong. And so uh, he's giving us these commands to his church of how now are we supposed to live? Well, Jesus is telling us. So please stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19 today through verse 24. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. There there are two commands in this passage. One negative, one positive. The negative command, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The positive command, verse 20, do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And treasure is a great word there because of its flexibility. Whatever that thing, anything you treasure in this life, in this world, it applies here to what Jesus is saying. Okay, that said... Jesus is addressing that treasure of money, which he makes clear at the end, verse 24, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus talked more about money uh, than he talked about faith and prayer combined. Uh, And you could probably parse that out in different ways, but he talked a lot about money. Jesus, uh, 11 of Jesus' 40 parables, they were about money. You, You go to the Old Testament, story after story in the Old Testament is about money, inheritances, It's because we've got a problem with money. And Jesus warns there are four reasons not to lay up treasures on earth. The first, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. We know this. Like moths, when you think of moths, think think of your clothes. You know, fashion fashion may never go out of style. You know, fashion is always coming back. Uh, It may never go out of style, but your clothes... They won't last. And that rust, you know, you think of precious metals uh, corroding. And this word, this word for rust, it it also refers to your goods being devoured by rats and mildew. And he says, and whatever doesn't corrode, whatever doesn't fade away, is in danger of being stolen away by thieves. So, don't live for money in this life because it leaves you in this life. And 
You leave it when you die, and you can't take it with you. So Christians, your wealth, your status, your possessions, they will not make it to heaven. The first warning not to love money is, in the end, it won't last. The second warning Jesus gives to not live for money on earth, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure the most, it will capture your heart, and it will preoccupy your thoughts and your imagination. What you treasure will require, it will demand your heart's devotion. And Jesus' implication here is what we all know, and we have always known to be true, uh, those with all the money will be the first to admit there's never enough of it. There's never enough money to satisfy your heart's desire and devotion. Money will never be enough to satisfy your heart's devotion. In one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, chapter 5, very plainly, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Then he gives a concrete example from his day. He who loves abundance will not be satisfied with his grain. So you envision a farmer dreaming during the sowing season of a full harvest, full harvest coming, dreaming of his barn being full, so full he can't shut the door. But the warning, he who loves abundance will not be satisfied, not even with a full harvest. Why? Because it's not enough. Because what about next year? As soon as his barn is full, he'll start scheming for what? To buy more fields. To get more. What can he do next? He wants more, and the Ecclesiastes writer goes on. He says, with more comes all kinds of more. Like, if you have more money, you will have more problems. The more issues you have, if you have money, the more issues you're going to have to take care of. The more people you're going to have coming to you with their problems because they want some more of some of your more. And so the Ecclesiastes writer goes on, the simple day laborer, he says this, the simple day laborer gets good sleep, but the one who has money in a full stomach does not sleep. He can't sleep because he's thinking about more. That love of more will cost you more. Leo Tolstoy once wrote a story about a successful peasant farmer, so staying on the theme of farm, he wrote about a successful peasant farmer who was not satisfied with his lot. He wanted more of everything. And one day he received a very novel offer. For a thousand rubles, he could buy all the land. For just a thousand rubles, he could buy all the land he could walk around in a day. The only catch in the deal was that he had to be back at his starting point by sundown. So early the next morning, he started out walking at a fast pace. And by midday, he was very tired, but he kept going, covering more and more and more ground well into the afternoon. And then he realized his greed had taken him far, far, too far from the starting point. So he quickened his pace. And as the sun began to sink low in the sky, he started to run knowing if he did not make it back by sundown, the opportunity to become an even bigger landholder <clears throat> would be lost. And as the sun began to sink below the horizon, he came within sight of the finish line. Gasping for breath, his heart pounding, 
bursting. He called upon every bit of his strength left in his body, and he staggered across the line just before the sun disappeared. And he immediately collapsed, blood streaming from his mouth. In a few minutes, he was dead. And afterwards, his servants dug a grave. It was not much over six feet long and three feet wide. And the title of Leo uh, Tolstoy's story was, How Much Land Does a Man Need? The love of money will not satisfy. It is vanity. If you love money, you will never have enough. And not just money, but whatever, whatever your treasure is in, in this world, whether it's money or it's wealth or it's resources, it's fame or it's political power, <clears throat> religious power, societal power, relationships, sex, another person, your spouse, your kids, your friends, more. Just wanting more. The love of abundance, the love of more, it will not satisfy. The second warning not to love money is in the end, it won't fulfill you. And the third warning Jesus gives is that love of money exposes a heart of darkness. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a figure of speech we don't use anymore. But a healthy eye meant generosity. A sick eye meant covetousness. So this is from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Take care, this is a warning, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release, when you're supposed to release your indentured servants, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. <clears throat> If you were generous, you had a healthy eye. You had a healthy outlook on the world. You had a healthy outlook toward others. If you were greedy, you had a sick eye. You had a twisted outlook on the world. In this uh, show, it's The Office. Um, sorry, Michael Scott, the lead character, lovable loser of the show. It is informative and illustrative. He's, he's the regional manager of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Lovable loser. He's invited by his intern, Ryan, to go speak at Ryan's graduate class, business school class, uh, and Ryan's going to get extra credit, and so Michael's feeling super special. Uh, and it, but in Michael's presentation, Michael's ineptness, his total ineptness towards business, it's exposed. And, and so is the fact that Ryan, who Michael just adores, it's exposed that Ma Ryan is not impressed with Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. And Michael leaves very, very hurt. And on the way home, Ryan tries to explain, Michael, it's not personal. It's just business. It's just business. It's not personal. And Michael snaps back, business crying. Business is always personal. It's the most personal thing in the world. And we laugh, except he's not wrong. And this is the show, this is the whole show in a nutshell. Business, money, it is not impersonal. We act like it is. We want it to be. But what we do with our money directly affects other people around us. And it affects us. It's incredibly personal. Jesus says your heart's devotion, it's revealed by your actions. 
Your actions of generosity or your actions of greediness reveal whether your heart is full of light or darkness. And if you say that you're a Christian, but you actually live greedily, loving money more than God, he says, how great then is the darkness in you? And you've been fooled. The third warning not to love money is, in the end, it won't fulfill others. It won't last. It won't fulfill you. It won't fulfill others. And then this fourth warning Jesus gives is that the love of money comes at the cost of loving God. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's an impossibility. You cannot love God and love money. You can't equally love God and politics, God and country, God and anything else in this world, not even another person. And it's not, it's not that those things are unimportant. But when it comes down to it, what Jesus is saying is you have to have one reason above all others, one reason to live. Because you will serve something in this life. You will serve this one thing. Andrew Carnegie, wealthy steel tycoon in the 20th century, he once confessed this. He said, man must have an idol, but the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. To continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares, and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35. That did not happen. And yes, Carnegie built something like 2,059 libraries, but his steelworkers would say they didn't want a library. They wanted decent wages and working conditions. His steelworkers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot that they had to nail wooden platforms to the bottom of their shoes. Every two weeks, they had to slave in inhumane 24-hour shifts. And the only housing they could afford was crowded, and it was filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents and disease. Carnegie was wrong. Man must have an idol or you must have God. The fourth warning not to love money is in the end, it's the end. And it will be a choice between God, God alone who fills, and money that will never fill you. And in the end, without God, you won't be left with nothing. You will be left with an unending, unfulfilling, a never-ending, unfulfilling. Some have, uh, some have attempted to use these statements by Jesus to develop a radical theology known as liberation theology. This is the view that God has a preferential love for the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not condemning wealth. He's warning us against the love of wealth and the sins that inevitably follow with such idolatry. And nowhere, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere does the Bible anywhere state that the poor are specially favored from God apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, God loves poor people. And God loves rich people. In the Old Testament, Abraham was really rich. Melchizedek was really rich. Job was really, really rich. God made Joseph super rich. God made David and Solomon 
filthy rich. In the New Testament, Zacchaeus was rich. Levi was rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Nicodemus was rich. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, rich. Paul had rich friends. Being rich does not make you good or bad. Being poor does not make you good or bad. Each circumstance is given to you by God. And each is a test from God meant to strengthen you. But with each circumstance also comes temptation. Both rich and poor struggle with money. For the rich, their wealth comes with a temptation to arrogance, pride, bitterness, greed, depression, anxiety, loneliness, idolatry. For the rich, their wealth is a test toward humility, gratitude, generosity, That thing of, Lord, why me? I know people smarter than I am, more talented than I am, harder working than I am, and yet I've been more successful than them. Why me? And even if I look around and I am working harder than anyone else around me, why me when I deserve nothing good from you in this life or the next? For the poor, their poverty comes with the temptation to This should sound familiar. Arrogance, pride, bitterness, greed, depression, anxiety, loneliness, idolatry. And for the poor, their poverty is a test toward humility, gratitude, and generosity. Lord, why me? What good do I deserve from you? And yet, because of your grace and what Jesus has done, I know I know that an eternity of glory, unfathomable wealth awaits me. That no luxury on this earth in this life could ever possibly compare, and I've done nothing to earn that heavenly glory. I've done everything to deserve the opposite. Lord, why me? What Jesus says here also answers an opposite theological error, uh, prosperity theology that says if you're faithful to God, God will prosper you in this life. The prosperity gospel is abundantly present in Houston and in the world, and we should expose it for the lie that it is, and we should knock it down for the total sham that it is. And we're also susceptible to it. We lose money. A natural disaster hits. Other people do us harm. One of our loved ones dies. We get sick. We die. We look up to heaven and we say, what? We say, God, why me? Look how I have served you. Look how I have served your church. How could you let this happen to me? We struggle with prosperity theology too. And there's a reason all of us do. There's a reason everyone does. We all do. Our connection to all the prosperity gospel peddlers is our shared heritage. The history that we share of piety and prosperity, they used to go hand in hand. When? Before the fall. And we all have that original arrangement sewn into our DNA, the DNA of our hearts, because that's how it used to work how it should work. If we're pious, then we prosper. That was God's arrangement with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. 
and they rejected it. That, that arrangement is written on the heart of every human being who has ever lived, but we have rejected it. None are pious, so none deserve prosperity. We are spiritually bankrupt. Can we do one more from the office? Uh, and then never more. Uh, Michael Scott, regional manager of Paper Dunner Mifflin Company, discovers he discovers that he is financially broke. We were just talking about this the other week. He discovers he's financially broke, and Creed, the real Creed is the real shady employee. He suggests that Michael declare bankruptcy. And remember Michael being gullible and naive and so dim-witted, he doesn't understand what that means. And so he walks out onto the floor of the office and he shouts, I declare bankruptcy! And then Oscar the accountant comes in to Michael's office and says, Michael, that's not how bankruptcy works. But Michael's right again. Uh, spiritually speaking, that's exactly how it works. You actually do need to say about yourself to God, to each other, spiritually, I am bankrupt. I declare, I declare bankruptcy. You've got to be honest about your failures, your flaws, your struggles, your sin, your desperate need. And it seems like the church is the place where people we just get together and we do the exact opposite. Uh, it's so tempting to show up here like, uh, like we do everywhere else and, and put on this thing of, I've got it together. I'm all good. When, when that's tragic because the church should be the one place on the face of the earth where you can come together with a bunch of other people and say, how messed up and how broken is this week and this life, it, my past few days, and admit your need of Jesus with full confidence that you are going to hear grace. This is something we've got to hear weekly because every week we go back out into the world of Houston that tells us the opposite that you need something else, that you need more. And it's not just admitting that you're bankrupt. It, he says you've got to lay up treasures in heaven. At the end of the Bible in Revelation, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus says this to the church, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. But if you're broke, how can you buy anything from Jesus? This is actually from the Old Testament too. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, God says, come, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And this is what Jesus means. When you come to me with nothing, I give you everything. It means Jesus will only be your master by grace. Jesus will only relate to you by grace. You come to Jesus with your sin. You come with your failures. You come with your doubts and your struggles. You come with your suffering and nothing else. And he will give you everything. That is laying up treasures in heaven. And he was rich in heaven as a son of God from all eternity, rightful heir of the cosmos and worthy of all worship. He had the privileges and the rights of the second person of the Trinity, and yet he gave up those privileges, he gave up those rights willingly to come and live a poverty-stricken life. 
born to a poor woman, to an oppressed people, to a poor life, and then he died a poor sinner's death on the cross. That life and that death saves us, blesses us eternally, forgives all of our sins, restores our relationship to God, a relationship now of love and of favor, gives us eternal life. With his death on the cross, he purchases eternal life for you. And loved ones, that eternal life, it will be tangibly, physically, spiritually wealthy in the new heavens and the new earth. Physically, spiritually blessed forever as you are made a joint heir of the cosmos. His becoming poor, that is what has made us rich. And the more that you want, the, the, the more that you need, that your heart is crying out for, that more, it's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we simply thank you for Jesus. What more do we need? And as we struggle with the more that we, we, we strive after, bring us back to that place of simple faith and trust that what we need, we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, grow our faith, we pray, and, and help us to extend that grace uh, and that gospel truth to one another here, uh, to remind each other, you have what you need in Jesus. And yes, 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 this life is hard, but it won't always be. And our hope is not futile. Our hope, our hope is true. And at the end, in Jesus, we will be filled. So give us faith to persevere today and tomorrow and the next day until you call us home. In Christ's name we pray, amen.